Introduce yourself, please. Hello, my name is Adam Schwartz. I'm the director of Ames Laboratory. Great, let's get started. Welcome to Innovation Ames, a series of conversations with scientists and startup owners about ideas and aims and how to go from prototype to product. I'm your host, Dan Micah. Adam, thank you so much for uh, joining us here in the Ames Tribune office. We really appreciate it. Uh, so tell us uh, a little bit about yourself um, from when you were a le- wee little lad to uh, where you are right now. All right, Dan. Thank you for having me. I was born in western Pennsylvania. Um, I played a lot of racquetball. was going to be a professional racquetball player. wasn't even going to go to college. It turns out that I got injured right before Christmas break, high school year, and uh, then decided to go to college. I applied to University of Pittsburgh and Penn State, ended up going to University of Pittsburgh for engineering. Senior year, I got a great recruitment talk. I decided to stay for graduate school, finished my PhD there in material science and engineering, went off to Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California uh, to do a postdoc, ended up staying there. And uh, two and a half years ago, came to Ames to become director of Ames Laboratory. Mm-hmm. So from talking with some folks around town, people know that the Ames Laboratory exists, um, and, but they don't really have a good idea of what they do compared to other research at Iowa State. So what's the differentiate? What's the dif- uh, difference there? So Ames Laboratory is one of only 17 Department of Energy National Laboratories. These national laboratories focus on Uh, basic science, they focus on energy, they focus on environmental concerns, and they focus on nuclear safety and security. These typically uh, bring large teams together to focus on problems that university professors typically don't engage in. Significant amount of teamwork, building interdisciplinary teams. Ames Laboratory in particular focuses on, on the creation of new materials to provide energy solutions. Our slogan is creating materials and energy solutions. Mm-hmm. And that's the, uh, the specialty of the lab. No other uh, DOE lab works on that kind of material science. Well, uh, no. At, at, that, at that rate. At that rate. So materials are everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. They, they are used in all sorts of electronics. They're used in lighting. They're used in transportation. So many other laboratories do actively pursue different forms of material science and engineering. Ames Laboratory's specialty is in some very complex materials. Uh, Our history stems from the Manhattan Project. Because of existing expertise in in what are called the rare earth elements, they sit down there pretty far on the periodic table. They were not widely studied back in the 1930s and 1940s, but there there was expertise at Iowa State College. A Manhattan Project came here and said, can you help us with this? Uh, the laboratory went on to purify about a third of the uranium used in the first nuclear chain reaction, and then went on to produce more than 2 million pounds of purified uranium for other uses in the Manhattan Project. Uh, our current work stems from that. Uh, we've been working on these complex materials from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And we continue that today. Examples are magnetic materials, uh, superconducting materials, catalysts, critical materials, 
metamaterials, a new type of, a new form of matter of material uh, that has remarkable optical properties. Mm -hmm. um, what, what materials have come out of the uh, Ames lab that people might be able to recognize by like a brand name? By a brand name? Or if it were to like point out like... I have a good one. Okay. Lead, lead free solder. So lead is now very well known to be poisonous. The world did uh, a pretty good job getting lead out of paint. Well, solder made of lead and tin was used throughout the electronics industry, uh, throughout many industries for decades and decades and decades. And the reason why it's used, of course, is because it's relatively inexpensive and has just the right properties, right melting temperature, right flow, etc. Europe basically led the charge in saying, we want to get lead out of solder because it's used in manufacturing, it's in every single household. Ames Laboratory responded and led by an Ames Laboratory scientist, Ivor Anderson, uh, we basically won the worldwide competition to develop the first lead-free solder that had all the right properties. Because existing manufacturing is set up for, for using uh, the solder that has a certain melting temperature, a certain strength, certain resistance to, to temperature and corrosion, uh, the ideal solution would be just drop in. So Ivor and his team developed a, a solder that had no lead in it, that had uh, basically the same melting temperature, had equivalent or superior strength properties, melting temperature, and performance. Mm -hmm. So uh, currently lead-free solder is used in pretty much every piece of electronic equipment that you buy out there. It is licensed in over 23, 60 companies, 23 countries throughout the world. Mm -hmm. That would be one example of a, of a material that everyone uses that was developed at Ames Laboratory. Mm -hmm. So describe to people what the pipeline is from getting research that maybe originated maybe from someone in Iowa State, a regular professor, maybe a postdoc at the Ames Lab. How does that go from within the laboratory to in everyone's phones, in everyone's cars, in everyone's products? Okay. Uh, oftentimes, Ames Laboratory is, again, one of 17 Department of Energy National Laboratories. We are uh, the responsibility of the Office of Science. So by, by birth, we are a, a basic science laboratory focused on materials, focused on physics, focused on chemistry. So researchers have a particular interest that is aligned with developing new materials for energy. Department of Energy will fund a particular researcher or group of researchers with students and postdocs to go off and do work in this area. If that research looks promising for a product, then other parts of the Department of Energy, for example, energy efficiency and renewable energy, it's one of the applied offices, applied science offices, they might say, you know what, that looks particularly interesting to us. We see that research having a, a benefit, either a commercial benefit or a, a societal benefit to the country. They will then fund that. If we are successful in that applied research, um, we're either spin off a company or to be uh, licensed directly to a, to a larger company. An example is in the area of catalysis. Uh, in particular, there were researchers at 
the university who were doing research on catalysis. Catalysis is a process by which you try to take advantage of the properties of one material in order to accelerate reaction rates to make something else happen. And the thinking behind this was for biodiesel production. Uh, Iowa, in particular, has been making biodiesel for some time. The catalyst that they used required relatively high temperatures, relatively high pressures, and a relatively pure crop feedstock. The catalyst, the basic science, the basic catalysis research that was going on at the university discovered a new type of catalysis, a hybrid or cooperative catalysis mechanism. That received uh, enough attention by Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office at DOE that they funded a program. And that program was successful. This new hybrid catalyst was showing great potential. A spin-off company was formed here in central Iowa, Catalan. And just a couple of years ago, Catalan was purchased by Alba Merrill, one of the very large chemical companies here in the U.S. So that's one example of how uh, basic science in terms of understanding basic mechanisms of chemistry or physics shows promise, shows enough promise that the researchers, the university, the laboratory go out and, and advocate for additional funding. If that funding is successful, spin off a company and develop a new product. So I'm curious, how many of these ideas um, that originally start off in a lab, um, products that have a chance to make it through the first, second rounds of funding, how many of those actually make it to market? I don't know an exact number, but, but the fraction is relatively small. Uh, I would say that in basic research, maybe one out of a hundred at most get to some product down the road. Another example of a technology that was developed at Ames Laboratory was in the area of making metallic powders. Mm -hmm. So for decades, uh, the easiest way to make metal parts is to cast them. Right? You think about an automobile, you think about steel girders that are cast and then rolled and formed into some shape. There are certain materials that just don't cast very well. So the, the materials folks, the metallurgists created small metallic powders that were then consolidated in a mold, heated up, and you form part by what's called powder metallurgy. Well, over the last five years or so, a new form of manufacturing, additive manufacturing, has come along. Uh, additive ma manufacturing is not a new technique, but the technologies associated with it have finally caught up with its potential. So rather than making a a cast part and then using machine tools to make some shape, you can think about 3D printing where you would take, um, I'll use the example of plastics first, or toothpaste where you're squeezing toothpaste out, you're moving the, the base plate around and building up a three-dimensional structure. To be able to do that with metal would be incredible. Well, Ames Laboratory has has expertise in making some of the purest, most spherical, most efficient particles, metal particles out there. And uh, again, about two years ago, research that was funded first as basic science uh, was spun off into a local company, Iowa Powder Atomization Technologies, that again, about a year and a half ago, a year ago, 
was purchased by Praxair. They are now selling or about to sell titanium powders for the medical implant industry, for the uh, aerospace industry, and so forth. So those are, that's another example of starting at basic science, moving its way up through applied. It shows enough potential that it's either licensed or, or bought out. Mm -hmm. But the fraction's pretty small. Sure. I, I did want to follow up on that. So why is that fraction so small? What, what causes something that has proof of concept to be going through the development stage and uh, stages and eventually uh, fail to reach commercialization? That area is a little bit outside of Ames Laboratory's scope. We, we start at the basic science, and in general, we bring it up through applied science and say, okay, here's what we have. This material or this process can do this. Is anybody interested? And that's where we do some technology transfer. We do industrial engagement, and we try to reach out to companies that we think should be interested in this. If a material or a process has been developed, um, why doesn't it succeed in having some economic value? One is material costs, or the process may be simply too expensive, too awkward, too dangerous in order to, to economically be turned into a um, widespread, widespread process. For example, uh, we know that titanium alloys, titanium aluminum, uh, make for great aircraft parts golf club heads, but uh, titanium by itself and the processing of titanium is too expensive to make it for widespread use for automobiles. It would be a great frame. It would be a great body uh, component. Uh, simply way too expensive to do that. So that's one of the reasons why materials get to the point of, oh look, this is a fantastic material. It's got great properties, but it's just too expensive at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, so let's shift gears. I understand, uh, and we've spoken about this a little bit, about uh, the, the chief research officer position mm -hmm. recently opened up. Yes. Uh, what does the chief research officer at the Ames Lab do? All right. Chief research officer at Ames Laboratory wears uh, more than one hat, but the primary function is to oversee all of the science and programs going on at the laboratory. Uh, a typical structure in a laboratory will have a director, a deputy director, a chief research officer, and a chief operations officer. So our primary business is doing science, doing research. Uh, we require operations, accounting, budget, purchasing, facilities and engineering services, right, to, to have the laboratory function. The chief research officer is responsible for all of the science and research. So when it comes to uh, using some of our very limited uh, internal research and development dollars, we call it laboratory research and development, uh, the chief research officer will, will work with me and with others on the executive team at the laboratory to say, okay, what is our focus for the year gonna be? We may have three or four initiatives. The chief research officer, of course, has input to that, will announce that to the laboratory, will manage the call for proposals, will send some of them out for technical review to, to other institutions, and ultimately bring back 
uh, recommendations to the director and we will decide what internal funding we're going to use for which projects focused on our initiatives. Another important aspect for the chief research officer is going out and interacting with other national laboratories. Department of Energy over the past 10 years or so has done a fantastic job getting the laboratories to work even more closely together. They started about a decade ago with a set of programs that they call Energy Frontier Research Centers. And the purpose of this was instead of having uh, individual faculty members or individual researchers at laboratories work on something, say, catalysis uh, or, or batteries for energy storage, why not take advantage of all of the expertise in the national labs, get them to start working together, branch out to the university researchers and to industry, and start building teams? Those Energy Frontier Research Centers were incredibly successful, are still incredibly successful. The next step up from that is, uh, is what DOE calls Energy Innovation Hubs. These are very large programs. Ames Laboratory is the lead on one of them called the Critical Materials Institute. There are four national laboratories on the team, uh, seven universities, and more than a dozen uh, industrial affiliates. Again, the idea there is take advantage of all the expertise out around the national laboratory complex, universities, and make a much closer tie to industry. The chief research officer helps build those teams, helps develop those ideas so that the country is investing in the highest priority, highest value added research they could possibly be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you can't really talk to um, as to when the uh, who the next CRO will be because you're still in that process of so right. have, do you have an idea of when you, uh, the lab will make an announcement? I would like to say we will be announcing in November. Okay. But I don't know for sure. Okay, fair enough. Um, so you mentioned the uh, Critical Materials Institute. Um, you know, I've done a little bit of looking into that. Um, in, in my mind, it sounds like a skunk works of like the best of the best doing whatever, like way in the basement of the lab. Um, am I wrong on that? Um, or, or maybe in the broader question, what does the Critical, uh, Critical Material Institute do? Well, you are right on one part. You are right that it brings together the best of the best. Uh, you are wrong about hanging out in the basement secretively. <laughs> uh, we want to address critical materials issues. So critical materials are, are really any material that is either in undersupply or at risk of being in undersupply. What would an example be of something like that? Uh, currently, these rare earth elements are, are one of the main foci of being a critical material. The, the rare earth elements, uh, the not so common names like dysprosium and neodymium and terbium and europium, not everyday terms, but these are the elements that sit down there relatively far on the periodic table, but are essential for all types of electronics. Uh, your earbuds, for example, are, are, are possible because these rare earth elements make much more powerful magnets than were ever made before. If you remember the old days, people wore big headphones around. It's because the strength of the magnet required 
larger cones. Mm -hmm. A physically larger magnet. You needed a physically larger magnet to have the same energy. Because Mm -hmm. these rare earth elements create super powerful magnets, you can shrink down the magnet, you can shrink down the speaker, and therefore you have your earbuds. So the rare earth elements uh, are not particularly rare in the earth's crust. The main issue is that they are not concentrated in a number of locations around the world. Mm -hmm. 30 or 40 years ago, the United States was the leading producer of rare earth oxides. Over the three or so decades since then, uh, China entered the market, paid less attention to environmental concerns, maybe less attention to worker health and safety. And basically by 2010, uh, acquired about 95 to 97% of the total world market. They got into a disagreement over a fishing trawler and overnight imposed export quotas on their rare earths. So the price of many of the rare earths went uh, up by a factor of five or 10 or 20 or more. So imagine you are a United States manufacturer of speakers and you need a high performance rare earth permanent magnet and all of a sudden your magnet costs are gonna go through the roof. You've got issues. So that's one example of a critical material. How then do you deal with critical materials? Well, the the simplest way of thinking about a critical material is is like your home finances. What do you do if you don't have enough money? You either make more or you spend less. We do the same thing with critical materials. Critical Materials Institute has three primary focus areas, diversifying supply, developing substitutes, and improving reuse and recycling. So improving supply, diversifying supply, uh, doesn't mean going and digging more out of the ground. But after you've extracted these, the the rare earth dirt, can you improve the separation technology to take the good stuff out from the bad stuff? If Mm -hmm. you can make that more efficient, less expensive, uh, you're gonna make more money. So that will encourage more miners to go in and explore for rare earth deposits. So that's one way of making more. You make it more efficient to go mining and separate it out. Developing substitutes, that's using less. If you can develop a replacement for the rare earths that are used in, say, fluorescent lamps or in speakers and microphones and any magnet application, uh, if you can develop a new material that uses either no rare earth or less rare earths, you are, you are reducing the pressure on the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And then improving reuse and recycling, Uh, uh, there is something like a billion hard disk drives that are disposed of every year. Those hard disk drives have magnets in them. They're small, but uh, even small times one billion is a pretty big number. So that's a way if we could recover or reuse those magnets, that also increases the supply and reduces the pressure on it. So the Critical Materials Institute assembled uh, true experts in 
those three areas, diversifying supply, developing substitutes, and improving reuse and recycling from the National Laboratory Complex, from universities around the country, and, uh, and has linked with businesses that are very interested and require rare earths usage. Mm -hmm. So let's look five years down the road. What would the what would the Ames Lab look like? Would there be a difference in how many people are staffing it? A difference in what exactly is being produced or researched at the lab? What, what do you see down the road? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I'd like to see that Ames Laboratory continue to grow at a at a moderate pace. Uh, the areas of research that we are currently engaged in and will be researching going forward uh, remain very much aligned with our historical strengths. These very complex materials uh, or quantum materials such as the, 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 the permanent magnets, the superconducting materials. We've had some very good recent success in developing new programs. I talked a little bit about the powder synthesis for additive manufacturing. With additive manufacturing growing by leaps and bounds throughout the country, someone needs to be able to supply the powders to them. And working with uh, leaders at the Department of Energy Advanced Manufacturing Office, we've been able to bring in a very, very nice program to further expand uh, our capabilities in making specialized powder for whatever application you're looking for that we will then share with the rest of the community and that will help accelerate, further accelerate additive manufacturing. So going forward five years, we see uh, Ames Laboratory doing significantly more work in that area. Another new program that we are very excited about is in caloric materials for refrigeration. Uh, so this one's gonna get a little technical. Go for it. All right. Uh, let me start with energy conversion. Energy conversion is where you convert one form of energy to another. And the classic example would be a solar panel. Energy from sunlight comes in, impinges on the solar panel. The solar panel materials convert that sunlight energy into electricity. Converted from sunlight to electricity, energy conversion. Another form would be when you have that electricity that you send through a light bulb. You've then converted it again from electricity to light. And just like the lighting industry is undergoing a tremendous revolution going from 100-year-old technology with incandescent bulbs to LEDs, light-emitting diodes, uh, and that transformation is happening very, very, very quickly. These LED lights are much more energy efficient. They last much longer. And as soon as manufacturing capabilities catch up with uh, the demand, the price for these LEDs will come down even more than it already has. So the lighting industry is seeing this major revolution. Uh, we are hoping to, to help out with a similar type of revolution in heating, sorry, in air conditioning and refrigeration. The world uses 100-year-old compressed vapor technology. Simple thermodynamics, it's been around forever. Your home refrigerator, your, your vehicle air conditioner. Uh, you can think about uh, either your home air conditioning, building air conditioning, meat packing plants, all use this form of cooling. It's not very efficient. It uses relatively nasty greenhouse gases. And 
we think we might be able to help accelerate a transformation from that old technology to a new technology. And that new technology is using caloric materials. Caloric materials, caloric as in calorie, convert one form of energy into another. An example could be magnetocaloric, magnetic caloric, where you have a material that when you apply a magnetic field, that material undergoes a very large temperature change. So the idea would be, based on an, a discovery at Ames Laboratory 19 or so years ago of a giant magnetocaloric material, can we develop these materials that are cost-effective, earth-abundant, that we could then put into a system where you have a warm fluid coming in, you apply your magnetic field, cools down the material, fluid flows over that cooler material, cools down, and you can develop a system for refrigeration or cooling. So five years out from now, I'd like to think that Ames Laboratory is gonna have even more of an impact in the area of magnetic or caloric refrigeration, uh, as well as the powder synthesis and additive manufacturing that I talked about. And of course, there's a long list of basic science that we are pursuing better catalysts, these quantum materials for, for information storage or information processing, amongst many other things. I think the future looks incredibly bright for the lab. And thank you very much. Very welcome. Glad to be here. That's all for this episode. Innovation Ains was produced and hosted by me, Dan Micah. Special thanks goes to Michael Crum and Scott Anderson, the editor and the publisher of the Ames Tribune, respectively. Let me know how I'm doing. If you have complaints, praises, guest ideas, I want to hear from you. Send us a message on Facebook. We're at the Ames Tribune. Or you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at DanMicahTweets. This is an Ames Tribune digital production.